There's a podcast I think our listeners would want to know about. It's called Seen on Radio. And the show has received much acclaim for its deep and engaging dives into the history and the very structure of American society. How can we see society more clearly so we can be more effective in changing it? Seen on Radio's two recent documentary series, Seeing White and Men, have explored racism and sexism in eye-opening ways. Check out Seen on Radio. That's S-C-E-N-E on Radio from the Center for Documentary Studies and PRX. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. How can we end homelessness? That's the question we hope to answer today with our guest on Future Hindsight, Maria Foscarinas. She is the founder and executive director of the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty. Maria has advocated for solutions to homelessness at the national level since 1985. Thank you for joining us. Great to be with you. So you have been an advocate since 1985, and you established the Law Center in 1989 to end homelessness in America. And before that, you were working at a corporate law firm. That's a big leap. What made you decide it was necessary to start the center? I started my legal career with the idea that law provides concrete tools that can make an impact towards justice in the world. When I was at my firm, I had an opportunity to do pro bono work representing homeless families who had been denied emergency shelter. That gave me a window into how law can really make a difference and really affect people's lives. It also gave me a window into the extreme poverty that exists in our wealthy country. My case was um, families living on Long Island, an otherwise wealthy suburb of New York City, and they were living in cars, single basement rooms with no floorboards. It was just an incredible contrast. And I was coming from representing Goldman Sachs, Exxon, large corporate entities who had access to vast resources to advance their interests. And these families had a legal services lawyer and they had me. And I just, I worked on that case for a couple of years. It was very compelling. This was around the time that homelessness was first becoming a national crisis in this country. I eventually left my firm, moved to D.C. to organize a national campaign and help get enacted the first federal legislation addressing homelessness. After a few years of doing that, I founded the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty to focus specifically on using the law as a powerful tool for social justice. You mentioned just now that the homelessness crisis started right around that time in the 80s. What happened? What precipitated the crisis? The leading cause was the cutbacks to federal funding for housing for poor people, starting with the Reagan administration. So just to put some numbers on this, in 1978, The federal government was funding about over 300,000 new units of affordable housing each year. And in 1980, 
three, that number had diminished to under 3,000 per year. So this was a huge cut, and it meant that people who were poor enough to be eligible for housing assistance were no longer able to get it. And that has continued to this day. Right now, only one in four people who are poor enough to qualify for federal housing assistance actually receives it. Everybody else is on a waiting list. In many parts of the country, waiting lists are so long that they've closed. It's not the only cause, but it is by far the leading cause, and it started in the early 1980s. That's astonishing, the drastic, as you say, number decline from over 300,000 to under 3,000. Does it mean that the government is not building new housing, or does it mean that the government is not subsidizing more housing? How does it actually work? It means both. So there are two main programs that are supposed to address housing needs of poor people. One is constructing housing, known as public housing, which has been, of course, demonized now, but it has not always been viewed as something bad. It's the government stepping in to ensure that there's an adequate supply of housing affordable to poor people. That housing hasn't been maintained and it's fallen into horrible disrepair. And that kind of perpetuates this stereotype. The other mechanism is housing vouchers. So these are federal subsidies that allow people who are poor, who meet the income requirements to get housing on the private market. At the same time, in the private housing market, there has been what we call gentrification. And in the 70s already, inexpensive housing was being torn down and being replaced by luxury housing or commercial property. And that was another driver that led to this explosion of homelessness in the early and mid 80s. And it's continuing as well. So can you give us an idea of the magnitude of homelessness? How many people are currently estimated to be homeless in the United States? HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, estimates over half a million people on any given night are living in shelters or in public or in transitional housing. We feel that that's a gross underestimate, and the numbers are really in the two to three million range. There are also different definitions of homelessness. HUD defines homelessness narrowly, but the Department of Education defines it more broadly, including people who are doubled up, sleeping on people's couches, on people's floors, because they have been evicted. They've lost their own housing and they have moved in with other people out of economic necessity. And there, the numbers are much larger. In fact, the um, latest figures are over 7 million people are doubled up due to economic hardship. Wow. The homeless population is basically consistently undercounted. Why is that a problem? Well, it matters because not a single person in a country with the resources that the United States has should be homeless. So any number is too big. But if we undercount the extent of this crisis, then we tend to minimize it. And that just is the reality of how our political system works. If it doesn't appear to be a crisis, 
it doesn't get the attention that it needs to get, and certainly not the resources. Why is safe, affordable housing a fundamental right? Well, it is actually a human right. It's recognized as a human right by the United Nations, by international treaties, and including some that the United States has signed on to. Without housing, nothing else is truly possible. Housing is essential for families, for children to grow up in, for adults who are working without housing. Health is jeopardized for people who are ill or disabled. But in our country, while Congress over 50 years ago set as a goal safe, decent, affordable housing for every family, it has not made it a right. So it's aspirational but it's not embedded in our law. It's not to say that there are not other laws that protect rights of people who are homeless. There are, and that's the work we do every day at the Law Center to enforce those rights. But we also work to advance the law, to stretch the law, to move it in the direction of greater recognition of human rights. One of the laws that you helped write and was passed was the Stuart McKinney Homeless Assistance Act. And that is a public law that authorizes the use of unutilized public buildings and real estate property to assist the homeless and make it available to nonprofit agencies. How does this law address the needs of the homeless and what still remains to be done? So the Stuart B. McKinney Homeless Assistance Act was the first federal law to address homelessness. It was originally passed in 1987 it includes many different provisions, including funding for emergency assistance, for shelters, for transitional housing, and some funding for permanent housing. It includes the right to go to school for homeless children, and it includes this right of access to vacant federal properties for nonprofit groups that serve homeless people. That particular provision has been very hard to enforce. The federal agencies would rather hold on to their property than give it away for free, as the law provides to nonprofit service providers. We have been to court many times successfully to get court orders enforcing the law. It helps, we estimate, over 2 million people every year there are now formerly vacant buildings and land across the country that are serving as shelters, as transitional housing, as permanent housing, as food banks, job training centers, daycare centers for homeless families and individuals. You mentioned just now children and families. We have a stereotype in our minds that homelessness is a result of personal failures or poor choices or worse, of mental illness, who actually is homeless? I like to kind of flip this narrative and say it's really the result of poor choices we have made as a society, not the poor choices of individuals. The large and growing percentage of the homeless population consists of families with children. There are also working men and women who 
do not earn enough to pay for housing. There is no place in the country that that worker just on that minimum wage job can afford housing based you know, using affordability guidelines set by the federal government. Veterans, and of course, there are people who are suffering from mental illness or addictions. That's the minority, but it is part of the stereotype because those are the people who are most noticeable. You may walk by a person who is homeless and working and not realize that they are homeless. Let's talk about the criminalization of homelessness. Increasingly, state and local governments are passing and enforcing laws against the homeless. What does that look like? There is a wide variety of types of laws that criminalize homelessness. And these range from laws that make it a crime to sleep in public to laws that make it a crime to beg in public places, that make it a crime to sit down in public, to live in your car. The basic idea is that these are laws that make it a crime for people who are homeless to be in public spaces. What's wrong with this is that typically there is no other place for people to be, and so they are being criminalized for living in public in the absence of alternatives. We have documented a trend that shows that these laws are on the rise. They're growing across the country. And typically what happens is cities are concerned. They feel pressure from other city residents, from the business community. And instead of addressing the reasons why people are living in public, they resort to a quick fix. It might make an impact in terms of making the city look better in the short term, but really it is ineffective as public policy. There are also studies that show that it is not cost effective. It is more expensive to send the police out to arrest or cite people, to put them through the court process. It is less expensive to provide housing, and it solves the problem. When people are arrested or jailed and then released, they still are homeless, and now they have an arrest record, and that makes it that much harder to find a job, to find housing, or even to apply for public benefits. We and our allies have been successful in a number of court cases challenging these laws as unconstitutional. Courts have agreed with us in a number of important cases. Tell us about one of them. Most recently, we had a big victory in federal appeals court in the Ninth Circuit, which covers nine states, primarily along the West Coast, where the courts agreed with us that a law that banned sleeping in public was cruel and unusual punishment and violated the Eighth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Essentially, it punishes people for their status, and it punishes them for engaging in activities that they have no choice but to engage in. And this was a case that originated against the city of Boise, Idaho, and we were able to show the court that really there was no alternative 
and people were being penalized for their status. Congratulations. So then what is the solution in Boise now? The solution in Boise, as in everywhere, because this decision applies across those nine states, is to create some alternative solutions. And those ideally should be housing. And there's a programmatic model called Housing First. There are other in-between intermediate steps, like offer shelter, and they shouldn't come with religious restrictions. They should provide services to people who need them. So that is what we are pushing for. What are the risks of not seriously addressing homelessness now? There are a lot of risks. I mean, we're losing lives of people who could otherwise really be contributing members of our society. But we're also perpetuating this problem generationally. Children and youth who are homeless are at greater risk of becoming homeless adults. And there are studies that show this. Childhood homelessness is a risk factor for adult homelessness. So the longer we don't address this problem, the more we're perpetuating it and making it harder to solve. This is an issue that affects all of us in a number of ways. For one thing, there is an affordable housing crisis in this country. Homelessness is the most extreme manifestation of that crisis. You may not be homeless, but you are you may be paying much more for housing than you can really afford. And that puts you at risk. It puts you a paycheck away from becoming homeless. It puts you a health crisis away from becoming homeless. We just saw this with a recent government shutdown where people really um, were scared just missing one pay period because we're living in a time of growing income inequality where there's a large number of people that are kind of getting by, but barely. And then the final thing I'll say is just it affects all of us when we're living in communities where we're daily confronted by people, our fellow citizens of the city who are literally living on the street and begging us for help. And people who visit our country are shocked because they're seeing that people are living in this abject poverty in a country with the wealth of the United States. Since I live in New York, I see the homeless every day on the subway, on the street, and it is shocking. But there's this feeling that you are helpless. What would you say to everyday citizens on how we can demand change for the homeless? One thing that's important, I think, is to look at the person you see every day or the many people you see every day and acknowledge their humanity. This is a human being. But you're right, helping one person doesn't solve the problem. The way to solve the problem is to engage politically. This is a structural issue. It's a systemic problem. So get involved. You can write a letter to your government representative, demand that that person do something, say, I want you to address this problem, not by criminalizing it, but by really addressing it through housing and through social services. Inform yourself. And the single most important thing, I think, 
that an individual can do is become engaged politically on this issue and make this issue a priority for our elected representatives in government. That really does make a difference. Yes. Yes, it does. I read in one of your columns in the Huffington Post that a homeless man was fined $100,000 for sleeping and camping in public in Sacramento. And in your post, you say it's not productive or humane. But frankly, it's just insane because (laughs) the city knows it will never collect $100,000 from this homeless man. Why does it keep doing that? What is the point of no return? Well, they're probably just not thinking, is my guess. This is a kind of a knee-jerk reaction. Someone set this into motion, and then it continues on its own. The city decided to adopt this policy, and then police are implementing it. And no one has stepped back to say, well, does this really make sense? Unless there is pressure from the outside, that will just continue. It's about reframing the conversation and saying, wait a minute, what are we doing? Can we do this better? Can we do this in a different way that is actually constructive? Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? First of all, I tell myself, and I truly believe that but for my efforts and our efforts collectively, it would be worse. And I know that the work we are doing at the Law Center has made change for probably millions of people. We have a lot more to do, and our goal is to make housing a human right. I look at the way people talk about healthcare now, and just recently that there's been conversation in mainstream poverty circles about a right to healthcare. So I think that we have to keep at this. Change takes time. There are candidates for president now talking about housing issues. There are bills in the Senate that are significant housing bills. So that makes me hopeful that our work is having an impact. And by sticking to it and being persistent and making this case that we can get there. But we need a lot more people making the case. This was super fascinating. Thank you for all your work. It's very impressive. Wonderful, Mila. Thank you so much for your work and for shining a light on these issues. It's really essential. My real takeaway here is that homelessness is an extreme manifestation of the affordable housing crisis. Like most people, I would think that homelessness is something that is not as systemic as it is and not really a structural problem. The other part about this interview is that it really reminded me to acknowledge our common humanity of ourselves, of the homeless, of the poor, and agree with Maria that housing is a human right. Without housing, really nothing is possible in our lives. Thankfully, the law is a powerful tool for people like Maria and her organization, the National Law Center, to enforce the law, to advance it and stretch it and to move it in the direction of recognition of human rights. How can we make sense of our currently chaotic healthcare system? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Dan Weissman. He's the host of an insightful podcast about the cost of healthcare for everyday Americans, which is very aptly called an arm and a leg. 
Dan is a veteran radio reporter for outlets such as Marketplace, 99% Invisible, Planet Money, and Chicago's WBEZ. Maybe the biggest category of notes that I get are from people writing me from Sweden. And they're like, I am able to think about a lot of other things because I'm not worried about it. If I get sick, I go to the doctor, I get treated, and I pay some nominal fee. And like, I'm done. And I am spending my life thinking about other things, leading my own career. Like, this is a big constraint. It's a constraint that people, you know, plan a lot of things around. And it's a constraint that like then can fall like a hammer on people. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Mm-hmm.